Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 7 of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in East Nashville, Tennessee. I'm so glad you've chosen to join me once again as we take some deep dives with a cast of wonderful musicians, producers, and engineers that I've managed to track down and speak to about making music, records, and just doing what they do in their lives in music. Don't forget there's a link to a playlist on Spotify and Apple Music with links to many of the songs we discuss on today's episode. You'll find links to those playlists in the show notes below or at our website. Meanwhile, the show continues to be largely listener-supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription, which is a monthly payment of your choice. And when you sign up for Patreon, you get an ad-free version of the show to listen to, as well as getting entered to win a cunning prize pack from our sponsors at the end of the season. Or if you're tight for dough and you still want to help out, you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just by spreading the word, sharing the show, following us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Meanwhile, a huge thanks to the sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know I sent you. They are Union Tube and Transistor, Spectra 1964, The Deering Banjo Company, Mule Resophonic Guitars, and The Henhouse Hang. All right, thanks so much to you for tuning in, and let's get down to it. Howdy, music nerds, and welcome back to the show. This is episode number 157 and the final episode of season seven. My guest today is the incredible guitarist, Mr. Tommy Emmanuel. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I sure appreciate you joining me this week as I do every week. It is insanely cold here in Nashville right now. It's about minus 15 Celsius today. I think it's going down to minus 20 tonight. For Nashville, that's really cold. For me as a Canadian, yeah, I'm a bit of a wimp. I'm from Vancouver. It doesn't get that cold there. So it is crazy. We had about a foot of snow last night and it's still snowing. So yeah, that's happening. And meanwhile, I'm just prepping to go up to Canada for some shows in a couple of weeks and I will be playing with my full band. So if you feel inclined and want to come and see some wicked music, we're going to be playing Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver, and around BC a little bit. Uh, Alberta's the first shows that the Calgary and Edmonton shows are coming up soon. They're first week of February and the BC dates will be in April. All those shows are listed at stevedawson.ca. And also I just wanted to mention, I have a couple spots left in my mixing class that's happening here in Nashville in March called the Hen House Hang Mixing with Steve. That's going to be a two day class focused on the mixing process. It's going to be really fun and I would love for you to join me. I think I have two spots left currently and uh, you can get info on that also at stevedawson.ca. There's a link to the Henhouse Hang on the front page. So after this week, I will be taking a bit of time to record and edit the episodes for season eight. So that'll be happening for me through the next couple of months, and we'll kick season eight off sometime in the spring. So stay tuned for the dates of that. I already have some amazing guests lined up. I've already done a couple of interviews that are really killer. I'm psyched to bring that to you. Meanwhile, I still appreciate your continued financial support through the downtime as well. I still have to pay for things like hosting and the website and updates and especially some of the cost to get the new season up and running. So thanks to everybody that continues to do a monthly payment through Patreon. And with the end of the season, I'd love it if you would take a second and go to the Apple Podcast app or the website and give this show a stellar rating, you know, perhaps five stars, who knows? It may seem kind of dumb, but that stuff really helps. Uh, You can leave a review too if you feel like it, but just leaving a high rating really helps the show's placement and visibilities for others to find it. So thank you for doing that in advance. And speaking of support, 
Patreon has been the main way to get behind the show over the last couple of years. And to show our appreciation back, you may have heard that we're offering up some prizes to our Patreon subscribers, and that time has come. So let's do this. Now, the prizes are pretty musician-centric, so if you're not a musician or guitar player or whatever, you can pass any of these prizes along to a friend or a relative that's a player, and they will love you forever because they're wicked. So here we go. The first prize is a Union Lab pedal, which is their take on the LA-2A compressor in a tidy little pedal. It sounds amazing. And you get a Spectra 1964 BBDI, one of the great DIs on the market, direct injection boxes. That prize goes to Kenny Schiff. The second prize is another Union Tube and Transistor pedal called the Tour Bender, which is a wicked fuzz pedal, and some swag, including a hat and a pint glass from our friends at Deering Banjos. And that one is going to Rowan Palmer. And the third prize is a Union Shiny pedal, and that's another kind of fuzz that they have. It's their take on the classic shiny pedal. And I believe some swag will also be arriving from Mule Resonators, but the weather's been so crazy that the mail hasn't been getting here, and so that has not showed up yet. And I'm not totally positive 100% what that third prize is going to look like. There will probably be some stuff from Mule Resonators in there, but there's definitely that Union Tube pedal. And that prize is going to James Patsula. So if you're one of those fine folks, thank you. Please just drop me a line through Patreon or my website, and I'll get these amazing prizes out to you this week. And thanks again to our amazing sponsors for making this happen, and to you guys for supporting the show. All right, then, on to this week's show. We have the incredible guitarist, Mr. Tommy Emanuel. Now, I just want to mention how I first saw Tommy playing. This was in the early 90s. I just moved back to Vancouver from Boston, where I was living, and there was this short-lived music festival in Vancouver called Music West. And they put on all these great shows around town, but they were tragically underattended. Um, it was kind of weird. <laughs> One of them that I remember going to was a Joe Walsh guitar clinic, which was bonkers. He barely played guitar. He played he he played Desperado on the piano and sang it, which was really weird because he wasn't even in the Eagles when they did Desperado. But that's what he did. That was his guitar clinic. It was odd. Uh, Danny Gatton played. Um, Seymour Duncan was there. It was really crazy, and a bunch of like really great Canadian guys showed up, and it was it was pretty interesting. Anyway, there was a show as part of that that was Tommy Emmanuel, Ben Harper, and Ali Farka Toure. Can you imagine that? And this is before anyone had really heard of them. Ali Farka had some buzz. I think he just made that record with Ry Cooter, um, and people knew who he was, and there was some excitement about his music, but nobody had ever heard of Ben Harper, myself included. Nobody that I knew had ever heard of Tommy Emmanuel, although he had been playing for quite a while at that point. But I don't think he'd played in Canada, and definitely nobody knew about him at that point. So I went to that show, and there was maybe... 30 people there or something in this big old theater. And they all blew my mind. Ben Harper was like, was incredible. He played songs from his first record, all solo. Ali Farka was insane. And Tommy Emmanuel totally blew my mind doing all these like original tunes and all this amazing Chet Atkins inspired finger picking and just one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. It was really memorable. Anyway, Tommy's gone on to be one of the most well-known acoustic guitarists of our time, and he's created a body of work that's stellar, but he's mostly known for his incredible solo shows. 
Tommy's from Australia, and he was a child prodigy, I guess. Is, there's no other way to say it. He was playing professionally when he was six years old with his brother and along with their dad. They toured all over Australia. That led to a lot of session work around Australia for Tommy, and eventually that led him to the U.S., where he landed in the 80s and met his hero, Chet Atkins. And Tommy eventually got the coveted seal of approval from Chet and is one of, I believe, four guitarists to have the official CGP title, which is Certified Guitar Player, given only by Chet Atkins. He's made, at this point, tons of records, some solo, some duets and collaborations, and some with bands. The latest of these is the second in a series, and it's called Accomplice 2, well worth checking out, as is his entire discography. And since we do talk quite a bit about the meeting that he had with Chet Atkins and playing with him and how this record went down that they made in the 90s, be sure to check out the record that we're talking about, which is called The Day the Finger Pickers Took Over the World. And that's his collaboration with Chet. And it must be the last thing that Chet ever recorded, because as you'll hear, he was in fairly rough shape at that point in his life. It was great to have Tommy on the show. We obviously talked a lot about Chet, their meeting, his influence, as well as Lenny Bro, some of Tommy's stage gear, and how he approaches arranging tunes for solo fingerstyle guitar, and he plays a bunch of cool stuff for me too. So he was on his tour bus at this time, and uh, we did have some problems earlier on in the day, but thanks to Tommy for his persistence in reconnecting with me and making sure this conversation took place. You can get all the current info on Tommy and his very busy tour schedule at TommyEmmanuel.com. And with that, please enjoy my conversation with Tommy Emanuel. So I got this cozy little dressing room. and um, Fantastic. And, and I'm sorry about our, our hitches today. but No problem, that's, man. That's life right. on the road for you. That's exactly right. <laughs> I guess uh, we started talking about this before, but what I'm really interested in talking about with you is this moment where it seems to me like you were sort of like becoming an acoustic guitar player from everything that you were doing before. And I know there's some fascinating stuff that I'd actually like to hear about to do with yeah. your life in Australia and Sydney and like playing sessions and stuff like that. But uh, um, when I saw you in 93 or 94 in Vancouver, that was the point where like your record was essentially electric, but you were starting to play, as far as I was aware, you were starting to play acoustic guitar. And just wondering. Well, actually, uh, the truth is I've played acoustic guitar all my life. Mm -hmm. uh, I started on acoustic guitar as a rhythm player for my mother and then my brother. And then my dad bought us some proper guitars yeah. and they were, they were electric guitars. So, I've actually, all my life, I've played acoustic, electric, I've played nylon string, I've played bass, drums, mandolin, um, uh, uh, and all sorts of different instruments. So um, what I'm doing now is it, 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 that slowly evolves. So if you look at the timeline of my life, so during the 60s, I was a kid and I, I was like the youngest professional guitar player in the world in the, in the early 60s. I was actually touring, doing shows and, and earning a living as a musician by the time I was six years old. <laughs> That's why they, they, when I moved to the big city, uh, in in the mid seventies, I moved to Sydney, and uh, most of the producers who who uh, hired me to play on records and all this sort of stuff, um, most of them called me Circus Boy. 
<laughs> I heard that your band with your brother was called the Midget Safaris. Is that true? That was the second name. The first name was the Emmanuel Quartet. Okay. Um, there was because of that name, people thought we were a string court a classical, you know. And uh, of course, we were far from it. We were playing kind of surfy rock and roll music, uh, surfy music, and um, and and country music. And uh, but so so in in the seventies, my goal was to be a studio player in Sydney. That was that was like that was the the ultimate. That was the apex. A- yeah, but I mean, of course, I didn't read music, and I still don't. I, and I'm a complete ear player, so, and I'd never heard stuff like jazz or anything like that. I'd never heard any of that kind of music. I'd only heard rock and roll music and Hawaiian music, country music. Um, so, and- so before we start talking about the Sydney thing, just going back to like when you're when you're six years old making a living as a musician, what does that actually look like? That's you and your brother, and who else was in that and- band? My eldest brother, Chris, was the drummer, mm-hmm. and my sister, Virginia, played lap steel g- guitar. No way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then we, we, we had a guy who was our kind of school teacher guy who also sang uh, like Jimmy Cash. And we had a lady who helped my mum with the kids because they were two younger than me babies basically mm-hmm. and and she sang she sang a few songs as well so we we had this kind of chorus band and then we had guest singers who'd come in and sing other songs and and because i was so little i would play the first half of the show till intermission and then i would have to go to bed because it was half <laughs> the bed time. that's how young i was <laughs> that's amazing so like what kind of were you playing like surf tunes and like ventures tunes and things like that or what well, was it there was well everybody says the ventures and the and we we did listen to the ventures but the band we listened to the most was called the shadows and they oh, yeah. were from england and they were they were on another level compared to the ventures they were mm-hmm. definitely they're they, a little more they, raw and gnarly in my They had such great songs, you know, great yeah. melodies and great production. And, um, you know, a lot of their music came out of EMI studios and in uh, w- w- before the Beatles, you know, in, yeah. uh, in, in London. And the sound of stuff was beautiful. So we were we were listening to that. We, uh, we also listened to a lot of uh, country music and uh, a lot of things that were on the radio. And we worked out instrumental versions of songs that were on the radio. And, so it was uh, primarily an instrumental situation, and then you would have your teacher guy sing a couple Johnny Cash tunes and yeah, whatever. Yeah. Okay, amazing. Yeah. yeah, that's what we did. And my mother took the took the money at the door and gave people their tickets and my dad hosted the show. What kind of places were you playing? Oh, we were playing in tents. Uh, We were playing in little halls. Uh, We were playing in beer gardens and we'd be part of, sometimes we'd we'd follow like a circus, a touring circus type thing around that that had extra events. And so there'd be like, in one tent, there'd be like a country music variety show. And then in this tent, there'd be, you know, Vanessa the Undresser. And then <laughs> and there'd, be, 
there'd be uh, you know um, the magician and and the kids playing surfing music and that kind of stuff you know were you were you guys a total anomaly or were there other like family bands with kids playing around australia there wasn't that many no uh, the guys that we we saw a few times that were a little bit older than us were singers and that was the bgs that was the gib brothers oh wow and, okay yeah so, you know, I'll, ne- I'll never forget Barry, Barry Gibb, who's a dear friend of mine. Barry plays the, the guitar with this open tuning. Yeah. And it's, it's tuned to an open E, right? So he's playing a chord like this and moving it up and back like with his finger, right? <laughs> yeah. And I'll never forget my brother Phil, who was like meticulous about everything and he's the lead player. He, you know, we're standing at the side of the stage watching him, and Phil says, "They'll, they'll never get anywhere. Look at this guy, you know, <laughs> moving <laughs> his finger up and down like a capo." Yeah, but we'll think of the songs he wrote, you know. Yeah, yeah, he didn't do too badly. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, how long of a thing was this? Like, did this go on for years and years, or was it just like a short well, stint, or what? It lasted about five years until my dad, Whoa. my dad passed away. Uh, He suddenly had a heart attack and died. I was 10. And um, after all the funeral and and everything kind of settled down, my mother said, uh, you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to stay here and go to school and we can just have a normal life here? And we were like, no, we we want to travel. We want to we want to we want to play. So we knew right as a kid, like that was your childhood. Yeah, they, this is this is what what we live for, and uh, so where, where's up, where's here? Like, where did you guys live? We lived up in the north of Australia, okay. uh, up in north uh, area called Queensland, mm-hmm. uh, and um, that's where my mum and dad are buried, and my sister and my brother and all they're all buried there. Okay, so it was kind of like our family um, heritage area, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But um, but anyway, getting back to acoustic and electric. So I started I started uh, writing songs um, because I was a songwriter, and uh, and I, you know, I think the first fifteen twenty years of my songwriting was absolutely forgettable, and. <laughs> and and uh, but then eventually things started to stick. Once once I got more. Uh, influence in 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 my my myself, you know. Yeah, uh, I, I was a big listener. I mean, I just listened to music all the time, and I was trying to work out stuff. I was buying, you know, I was buying George Benson records and, and Larry Carlton records and Lee Rittenauer records and Chet Atkins records and Earl Klug, and, and I was listening to every every. I was trying to take everything in. And um, was all that stuff pretty accessible in Australia, or did you have to really? Dig for uh, it. Um, well, I eventually found everything, mm-hmm. but like it, it was it was hard to find like a, a Jerry Reed record or a Merle right. Travis record. Mm-hmm. You could find Chet's records because he was on RCA. Yeah, but uh, you know it was it was a while. I I remember when I bought my first Jerry Reed record. Holy smoke! It was so great. It was yeah. uh, which one was it? It was when you hot your hot album. Okay. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, and then I bought the next one, uh, Georgia Sunshine, and uh, oh, I bought a whole bunch of stuff, and, and just listened and listened and listened, and and were you, learned. Were you good at like picking stuff straight off the record by ear? Was that your 
That's all I've ever done. Yeah, Yeah. that's how I learned to play. Yeah. You never had Uh, teachers or anything like that? No, there were no teachers. There are now. (laughs) There were no teachers. There were no teachers for. I I remember when I moved to Sydney, I was about 20 years old, and I didn't know much about classical music or jazz, right? So Mm -hmm. I knew that I wanted to be a studio player, and I was so, uh, you know, gung ho to, to, to get there. And so many players who were really well established were all readers. They were well right. established because they could read and an artist could put a chart in front of them and they could actually play what was written. I couldn't do that. But if you played it for me, I could play it back to you. Right, you know? right. So you just always had a great ear. My ears uh, were there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, uh, so some people said, <clears throat> you'll, you'll never get any work if you, if you don't learn to read. So you should go and learn to read. So... I went to the Sydney Guitar Society or whatever it was called, and it was two pretty pretty uh, well-known guitar players, kind of like the Barney Kessel and Joe Pass of Australia, yeah. both both jazz, you know, giants. And, and so I played for them, and they both kind of looked at each other smiling, and, and they said, you'll never be able to read what you can already play. Yeah, I can see that. (laughs) Yes. And and so we're not going to teach you. So they told me to move on, you know, (laughs) and just use my ears. So I did. When you moved to Sydney, when you were, you said you were about 20 and you wanted to get into the studio thing, what was, what did the Sydney studio scene, like what was going on there? Was it like jingles and, and albums or what was it? It was was jingles and, and people's records. Yeah, there was. I mean, I was busy seven days and seven nights a week. I was seriously, yeah. I, I was, I, I was playing on everybody's records. I was playing on uh, every commercial you can imagine, every Coca Cola, really? Kentucky Fried Chicken, McDonald's, everything. I yeah. played on everything, uh, and I didn't always just play guitar on. Sometimes I played drums, bass, percussion, backing vocals. Wow. I mean, I had to go at everything, you know. There, you know, and and the same thing when I finally got more established as a as an artist, I was on TV a lot. So I've actually, as an artist, I've had a go at everything. You know, I've I've played in a rock band, I've played in a jazz band, I played in country bands, bluegrass bands. I've done comedy. <laughs> I, I've done game shows. I've done. You know, there's there there, there isn't anything that you can imagine that I haven't. So was that like, was that interesting to you or were you just kind of like, Oh my God, what a grind. Or were you into it? No, I was just, I was just hungry for experience and knowledge, you know? And the thing is I got so much work because I was unafraid. I I was willing to have a go at something that I knew nothing about. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I remember doing a, um, Air freshener ad, and the guy, the um, yeah, the guy said, "Okay, it's going to be this stream, and it's going by, and it's a beautiful shot, and then the product will come up, and it needs to be like you know um, Bach or Beethoven." He was talking about. So I start making up this, you know, just like my idea of of playing classical mm-hmm. guitar, and the guy said, "That that's exactly what I'm looking for." So I played it in a real classical style. And they loved Perfect. it. Perfect. And uh, 
they had all this stuff written out and the guy just put the paper, put the music away and just, I made it up, you know, and th- that's how I work, yeah. you know, what, whatever, whatever you're looking for, I bet I can find it. You right. know what I mean? Like in a, in a normal day, uh, in, back in those days, the late seventies, early early eighties, it would be quite normal for me to have to play like um, the police uh, on a on a, a battery ad for some famous battery, and then uh, and then play like ACDC for a big commercial, and then uh, you know play like uh, run through the desert with a horse with no name, you know, yeah. like playing a twelve string like this. Yeah, you know, it it's it was quite normal for me to have to switch, and then s- sometimes they 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 do ads where it, it would sound like Frank Sinatra, and and so I, I would do. Freddie Green going chunk, 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 and then I'd overdub some kind of Barney Kessel style licks and stuff, yep, you know. Yep. And, and uh, that was all to work and and to get experience. Were you also like amassing a bunch of gear at that point? Like, were you able to like? Did you have like, oh. if you had to do like yeah. a ACDC thing, you had an SG, and if you had to do a Barney Kessel thing, you had an arch top and all that. Everything was a Telecaster. Oh, really? Okay. And I wanted out of a Telecaster. Yeah, yeah. And a Fender amp, you know. Sometimes I used a little Yamaha with 112, and and, uh, it had a parametric in it, and I could overdrive the parametric, and I could get that real creamy, you know, Larry Carlton sound, and then I could just, like, crank the mids and all that, and there's ACDC and, you know. Yeah. Amazing. I knew how to make make this. <laughs> yeah, and so you started at at that point too. You started playing in some like touring bands that w- that would have taken you out of that scene, I guess, right? Yeah. Well, uh, I was in I was in several bands, and I was producing artists oh, yeah. for CBS. I was a producer for CBS Records oh. in those days as well, and uh, most of the tracks I would um, I would build the track myself. I would start out with a click. And, and and or a drum machine and uh, and then I would put real drums on it and and guide bass some rhythms then I get the artist to come in and sing uh, to that and then I get a keyboard player in and then and then I'd redo the bass again and then and then I'd do all the guitars and structure the thing and bring then do the backing vocals and then do a rough mix see it's all working what it needs okay right and then we move on to the next song that that's how I kind of worked as a producer um I very rarely booked a whole band and then just got them all to play and sat right. in the control room. I usually made the whole thing from the ground up yeah, interesting. Where were you working there? Was there like a facility that accommodated you or did you have your own place oh, or what was it? There were lots of great studios. Oh, yeah. EMI, EMI Studios in uh, in Sydney were run uh, by the people from Abbey Road because it's the same company. Right. It's EMI. Um, and we used to call EMI every mistake imaginable. <laughs> uh, but they were really great guys and they were the first studios to have SSL and yeah. all that stuff. Um, and they were really like world-class studios, big Neve boards and a big mix-down suite. And, was, there one, you know, was there one facility in particular that, you know, like the Abbey Road of Sydney or whatever? Was there like one place? There, okay. EMI. It's just yeah. called EMI. Yeah, yeah, but there were, there were studios everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. They had, them, they had them like in France and the 
and some of the like the Virgin Islands and things. I, I think they were like scattered all over the empire, right? George Martin built the one uh, at uh, Montserrat. Montserrat, yeah. Air Studios. Yeah. I'll be there too. It's beautiful. Oh, you went there? Yeah. Amazing. It's beautiful. The console, the his the console that he designed with Rupert Neve that was in there ended up in Vancouver. Actually, at the, there's a studio uh, there. Brian Adams owns it called the Warehouse, and uh, it's the it's the same console that George Martin had. Only a guy like Brian Adams could afford a desk <laughs> like that. <laughs> totally. You know, Mark Doff, you go to Mark's studio, and it's just like uh, you've never seen anything so beautiful. You know, imagine, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so at some point, did you start getting an itch to come to the States? And like, that must have been a goal of yours. Oh, or- oh, absolutely. My first trip to America was in 1980. Mm-hmm. And my mission was to meet my hero, Chet Atkins, and, and to play with him. That was my that was my mission. And, um, and to see what's going on in America, see what I could see and learn and experience. And mm-hmm. so... I saw Elton John at the Hollywood Bowl, and then I went on to Nashville and I met Chet. So tell me about that. Like, how does that happen? Oh, my God. It was wonderful. Um, Chet and I had been writing to each other, and he was aware of me. People had sent him tapes of me playing without telling me. So he was already aware of me and my playing and some of my original songs and stuff like that. So when I... When I uh, rang his office, he took my call and I said, I'm, I'm down the road at the Holiday Inn. He said, well, come on down. I'll see you right now. So no, I jumped in a little rental car and came down to his office. And um, his secretary said, just wait right down here. And then she got on the phone to him. And he came down the stairs and there he was. You know, he, he looked exactly like he looked on the records that yeah. I spent all years looking at and reading every every bit of information on them and um what year would this be like mid mid 80s or no this is 1980 1980 okay and then he took me into a side room and he he wanted me to play for him so i went into me and bobby mcgee was that terrifying or was it just totally fine oh I was, yeah i was pretty nervous but but uh <laughs> Uh, he made me feel comfortable. You know, he was so, he was so nice. Anyway, um, I, I went into me and Bobby McGee and he just joined in on the second time round. And what he played made me sound so good. You wow. know what I mean? Yeah, that, that, was, he, that was his specialty, right? Yeah. And therein lies the lesson, you know, yeah. it was beautiful. And um, we, we, he took me upstairs three levels up to his private office. This is, uh, his office was on Music Row somewhere? That's right, mm-hmm. 16th Avenue South. Mm-hmm. And um, I could hear this guitar playing, and I knew exactly who it was. It was Lenny Bro. Oh, my God. Yeah, and so uh, he introduced me to Lenny, and then the three of us sat down at this table, and Lenny was already sitting there with Chet's Gibson um, nylon string and his little lamp. He was playing away, and Chet had his one of his classicals, and uh, and I pulled out mine, and and away we went. And 
we played for like four hours without hardly stopping, you know. Ted had to take calls every now and again. So he'd just jump out of the circle, answer the call, and he'd just jump right back in. And he was playing stuff that you'd never hear him play on record, like bebop lines that were just like mind-blowing. Really? You know, that was Lenny's influence, I think, you know. Uh So I – and then I took Lenny to where he was playing that night and took care of him and took him home and made sure he was good. Was he living in Nashville at that point? He was visiting. Okay. Yeah. In those days, I think he was living up in Maine somewhere. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the next day, Chet dropped me at the airport and, uh, and he said, well, I think you should come back here. And I think this is where you belong. Whoa. That's what he said. So I'm, I, I've been living in Nashville for 20 years. So this is 1980. You were heading back yeah. to, to Sydney at this point. No, I was going to New York because oh. I, had other, I had other people to, to – uh, I had to go to New York to, to hear other musicians. And, you know, I was trying to get a chance to hear whoever I needed to hear. And um, Who would that have been in New York at that time? Oh, well – um, I, I was hoping to hear George Benson, but uh, he wasn't playing in New York that, that weekend. Um, Aretha Franklin was on at, at Carnegie Hall, but it was sold out. I couldn't get tickets. But uh, you wouldn't believe it. I, I was looking through the New York Times and I saw Buddy Rich Big Band mm-hmm. warm-up, concerts, uh, warm-up shows before Carnegie Hall wow. series. Right. So I got in a cab and raced straight down to Greenwich Village and got in line. And there were three shows in that afternoon, three o'clock, five o'clock, seven o'clock. And it was a small theater. So he was running all the new songs and all the new charts for the band ready. Right. And. I got tickets for all three shows. <laughs> I went to I went to all three shows. Amazing! Um, it's the greatest musicianship I've ever seen. Who would was, have, do you know who would have been in the band at that point? No, I didn't really. Uh, I was there to see Buddy and mm-hmm. to experience what what he was all about. Mm-hmm. And the music. The, I mean, it was the first time I'd heard horn players so in tune. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the first time I'd heard a drummer that just drove the band like it was like a train. He was just unstoppable and so beautiful. And uh, yeah, I the the very first show when it was finished, I I had to go outside and walk around and think about what I just saw. You know, it just blew and then my mind. Yeah, and the second show, I just concentrated on what he was playing and the time and the feeling and what he was doing individually, and it was just so great. I mean, I noticed stuff like he was right on the on the pocket with the with this the the ride symbol, ding 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 ding, and I could hear this kind of. Uh, left hand digga 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 thing going on and then the hi-hat way back on the beat and it was just this beautiful feeling like push pull push pull like that i'd never heard anybody play like like push pull between his left and right hand yeah amazing and his foot it was it was just so beautiful you never heard anything like it you know and i still haven't heard anyone play with that kind of finesse it was just 
phenomenal. And boy, I've seen some great players. But but, but he was definitely on another level in every way, mm-hmm. you know. And it, it wasn't just m- – most drummers, when they go into a solo, uh, it, it looks like they're just showing off, you know. But everything Buddy did was was way beyond that. But if you just didn't watch and just listened, it was so musical, everything about it, you know. And I, even today, like I noticed, there are young guys out there with phenomenal technique and, and they, they break down, okay, here's what Buddy played here, and, and they go and they show it to you and they slow it down. This is what he did and all that. And then they play it. And it sounds like a bunch of rudiments, right? And you watch Buddy play the same thing, exactly. And it's music. Mm-hmm. That's the difference, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so anyway, Amazing. I didn't mean to spend oh, time on that. That's but. great, man. I love it. At this point in the show, I'd like to thank our amazing sponsors for the season. We couldn't do it without their support, and this year they are Mule Resophonics. Swing wider for inspiration with Mule Resophonic guitars. These are Resophonic guitars built for acoustic guitar players. Not just blues guitars, not just slide guitars. You don't need to play them in open tunings. They're set up with normal acoustic guitar action, and they have some of the best-feeling necks in the game. Trust me, they're wicked. These musical tools wake up your ear and influence your playing towards uncharted musical realms. Check out the current lineup of guitars at the Mule Store at muleresophonic.com. Thanks to Deering. Deering banjos make some of the finest instruments out there these days and caters to all levels as well. If you're just getting into the banjo, they offer their incredible Good Time series, which are high-quality instruments at lower prices. Deering banjos are all made in the USA, and their website also features some incredible info on their products and just general banjo information. And now Deering is also making pro pick finger picks and thumb picks, and that's exciting because I've been using those finger picks for years. They make these cool ones with the fingertips missing, and I love those. They're the best. You can get info on the banjos and the finger picks over at DeeringBanjos.com. Thanks to Spectra 1964. For over 50 years, Spectra 1964 has established a reputation of creating some of the most innovative recording equipment on the market today. Their consoles and preamps were behind the sound of so many great American studios of the 1960s through to today. Spectra 1964 continues the legacy of providing incredible recording products for the home or professional studio. Check them out at spectra1964.com. Union Tube and Transistor. Union is known for guitar effects pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that sound amazing both on stage and in the studio. Their fuzz effects and compression pedals are insanely cool. I use the Sonebender Fuzz, the More Pedal, the Lab, and the Swindle Overdrive all the time in sessions and live on stage. You can find out more about them at uniontone.com. And finally, the Hen House Hang is a three-day immersive recording experience at the Hen House Studio in East Nashville with me, Steve Dawson. It'll be in September 2023 and then upcoming again in September of 2024. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll show you the ropes of recording roots in Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info at stevedawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the Hen House Hang. All right, then. Let's get back to the show. I love that you sat there and hung with with Lenny Bro and Chet. So did you continue a relationship with, with Lenny Bro through his life and through your those years? I, 
I went to see him again when he was living in L.A. Um, I went to see him play at Dante's, mm -hmm. and um, he had a trio, and he was smoking. He was just so good. He had a seven-string uh, electric yeah. guitar. But it was, you know, it was the music went like this to the people. It just went boom, you know. Yeah. And as much as I admired everything I did, and I really loved Lenny, his beautiful soul, but it's not what I it's not for me, you know, that, that that's not what I do, you know? Yeah. You've taken a very so, different approach to, to a not dissimilar technique in a way. Exactly. It's all, for me, it's all about the strength of your songs and the arrangements. Um, and that that's what I know. Like I tell people, you know, it, uh, because people will ask me, um, every time we see you, you seem to be like right up, you know, a hundred percent. You're flying and blah blah blah. Don't you ever have a bad night, you know? And I'm like, absolutely, I do. There are some nights where I struggle like hell. Uh -huh. you, you don't know it, but I'm struggling. And and when that happens, I know that the, the magic is just not there tonight. And so. I better have some good songs and some good arrangements to play that I know that even on my worst night, the audience is still going to have a great time. Right. So some that's fall, really some fallbacks yeah. that you can. Yeah. But I mean, you're always, you know, I've been playing guitar all day today. I'm, I'm warmed up. I'm ready. I'm, I'm so ready to play tonight, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so I'm hoping that the, all the magic that that uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm expecting will show up. If it doesn't, I know that I've got a bunch of songs I can play and and just play them the best I can, and everything will be all right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. At what point in your in your life did you start really focusing on solo arrangements? Because that's like such a big part of what you do is like taking a popular song or a jazz tune or whatever it is and like doing your own take on it was that something that yeah. you were always doing or was it like yeah I, I was always interested in that be, be, because i grew up listening to chad atkins and every now and again they'd be, he'd do solo stuff yeah yeah uh, so i was always interested in that you know um and i didn't feel like i needed something else you know that, that the whole thing had to be uh um uh, complete. Let me grab my guitar and give you a little demonstration please, of something. Please do. And people are always asking about my arrangement of Blue Moon, the old uh, Blue Moon, you saw me standing a lot. Now, where I got this idea from was, you know, I, I was trying to learn some some kind of jazz standards and things and do move the moving bass line stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting there, I was sharing a house with two other musicians, and one was a saxophone player who had a great knowledge of, of jazz and, and arranging and stuff. And uh, I'm sitting there going, right? And he says to me, why don't you move the bass through the changes? And I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, like, and so he got on the piano and he went, duh, 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 duh. so the bass moved through the chords. So I figured out how to go. Now the bridge part, I got movement going on, or bass and harmony moving. So, you know, so I, 
I, I came up with that arrangement back in about 76. So I, I was now getting interested in w- working out stuff like that. And and, and so it goes, I, I was just looking for songs and, and stuff. And, and uh, I started to build my my solo repertoire. And at what point did you start actually doing solo shows? When I saw you in 93, like you must have been doing it for a while at that point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'd been doing okay. it all through the 80s. But, I mean, I was still doing bass. I was playing drums and bass and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know? <clears throat> I mean, I didn't eat and sleep for a decade, you know. <laughs> so did you, like, if as you're leaving Nashville and Chet Atkins says to you, you know, you really belong here, how did you respond to that? Like, was that something that you kind of wanted to take him up on or did you feel no, I like? Just, uh, I just let it go by and. Yeah, I'll remember he said that, and he was right because I—that's where I did end up. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but you know, in the meantime, I met a woman and got married and had children and and uh, yep. all that stuff. Then moved to England, and you know. So when were you in Sydney until like what year did you leave Sydney? Uh, Ninety-eight. And you moved to England. No, I'm, no, we moved to Melbourne. And we lived in Melbourne um, for eight years, from 90 to 98. And then we moved to England, and we lived in England. My, my, my two older daughters um, and my ex-wife, they, they live in England. And uh, I have grandchildren there now as well. Amazing. Yeah. And, uh, and after we got divorced in 2002, I think it was like six months later, I... Uh, I moved to Nashville, and okay. Nashville has been my home. I'm now a U.S. citizen as well. I have multiple. Uh, I have dual citizenship. Yeah, Australian and American. Yeah. All right. Yeah. When you actually did get to record with Chet on his, that was his last record, right? That's right. The day the is it the day the guitars took over the world? Is that what it's called? Am I remembering that right? Took over the world. Yeah. The finger pickers. Yeah. That, that idea, Chet came up with that idea because um, Dave Pomeroy, the bass player, had a record mm-hmm. called "The Day Bass Players Took Over the World," and uh, <laughs> it was all about everybody boogied to a different frequency the day bass players took over the world and uh, and he used to do this song and play a bass solo and and Chet Chet loved it you know and he thought well, we should do that you know and then then he said you got to come up with a melody and yeah so I I, I think I I had to write this uh, uh, yeah so I came up with the yeah. Well, the sky was overcast; you could hardly see. Yeah. So um, we um, it was actually uh, we recorded that album when I was still living in Australia, and mm-hmm. uh, I. I came over to to Nashville from Australia and stayed with with Chet and his wife at their house, and, and we 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 put that album together um, in his studio. Was that always the intention? Like he he brought you over to make this record? Yeah, yeah. That's so cool, man. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, you believe it? You know, I mean, I'll just never forget the 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 day that. Um, because uh, let me see, it was about a week before this. I was in Nashville for for a, uh, a, a Sony Music showcase, and there was mm-hmm. there was me and a whole bunch of artists 
including Keith. Keith was on that, Keith Urban. And, um, and so they put me on first because I was the token instrumentalist. And, <laughs> and I came out and hosed the crap out of everybody. Uh, uh-huh. so I'm in Music City and I got to make an impression, you know. So yeah. I got so out. You just pulled out all the stops. I did, and and it, the crowd were great, and and uh, I, I got an amazing response. And the next night, for the second night, uh, I opened again, and I, I went, and there, standing in the crowd, was Chet and all the Sony people. He, they were all there, and it was great. And so yeah. they were all very enthusiastic. And um, so I, I go back to Australia, and I'm home a few days. And the phone rings and it's Chet, and he says, "He says, uh, well, these uh, these Columbia people are pretty excited about you." And he said, "We should uh, do something together. Would you like to record together?" And I said, "Is there a mustache in Mexico?" Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, I put the phone down from that that conversation. And I was like, I can't believe it. My hero rang me and asked me if I wanted yeah. to play. It. So I wrote, I wrote this song. I'll play a little bit of it. Uh, I wrote this tune called Mr. Guitar. that song and 10 minutes later I rang him back and my daughter held up the phone to my guitar and I played it to him and he said oh I love it let's do it so so what was the what was the process like because that like that record is like very beautifully arranged was it a very is it I mean you guys are both so musical I would imagine it was not like a huge labor to put those arrangements together but we just had it finding the songs you know we Mm -hmm. I brought um I already had an arrangement of that that I'd done in the 70s because it was such a quirky melody and I, I really, really liked it. What's the name of that song? Or Borsellino. And, yeah. and it has this, you know, like as a player, it's got some perfect, like you're in A, right? right? So you got. See that? You got that move. Yeah. falls under your hand you know amazing i brought that one and i uh i showed him how to play waltzing matilda and uh and then mozzie classics yeah and then um i uh he sent me uh a, a recording of him playing to be or not to be uh, and asked me to learn it so he, I could play the melody and he would play the harmonies. So, so. Mm, okay. Dun, 
such a beautiful song. And mm-hmm. key of B, that's why he called it to be or not to be. So you Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's so pretty. Beautiful. And yeah. it's so him, this song, you know. And the bridge was written by Randy Goodrum. No, 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 no. Do not stop. Uh, so was he playing like really flawlessly and meticulously at that point in his life too? Or was he like, where was he at? He had, uh, he had, uh, he was getting over cancer treatment and uh, uh-huh. so he was, he was struggling a lot. Uh, uh-huh. But he played beautifully on the record. He played some beautiful stuff. Um, and um yeah, when, when the record was, when we finished the recording, everything, uh, um, I had to go back to Australia for a tour, and then I came back to do the mix with um, Chuck Ainley, who was working oh, wow. for Mark Knopfler in those days. Um, yep. And uh, so I, w- we had hired uh, Chuck, and I came back to do the mix, and Chet had been put in hospital with a brain tumour. Oh. And he left his Del Vecchio uh, resonator guitar on my bed with his microphone with a little note saying, if I missed anything, can you just d- drop it on, you know? <laughs> Amazing. But, yeah, so he, he left me in charge uh, while, oh my God. Getting, while he was getting radiation to his brain. And oh. um, so I took his guitar to the studio and, and I actually found a couple of places where he'd, he'd missed uh, you know, a few phrases. And I had to try and match his sound, you know, to get that vibrato of his. That sound he had was really. Hmm. You know, try yeah. to, try to sound like. You, I can tell it's me, but most people think it's Chet. So. But uh, right, right. That that was just as how we had to do it because he was he was fighting for his life basically. You know? Yeah, yeah. Was the session when you did the 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 playing together? Were you guys just like in a room together, just yeah, like you we would were be just playing, yeah, side by side kind of thing? And and uh, oh, it was it was it was beautiful. Um, mm. I think I I may have. Let me just check. But I may have. There's a couple of shots of Chet and I playing together. I, I, oh, that's not Chet. You know who that guy is? Oh wow, yeah, <laughs> Brian, Brian May. Yeah, dear old Brian, what a guy. But uh, yeah, we when we did Walsing Matilda and something, and maybe Dixie Maguire, we we just sat side by side like this. You know, he sat right mm-hmm. there and played. He played his Gibson solid body steel string. Uh, SST was called, I think. Yeah. Okay. And I and I played my bigger bodied mate and guitar just with a mic on it, you know. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the tunes he played his Del Vecchio resonator guitar. Right. Yeah, it sounds like that. Um, and you just did the record like in a couple of days or something? No. Um, I I had to do all the pre production part 
Um, so I, I used uh, a young programming guy because this is mid-90s, so you had programmers who could come in there and they'd bring in a wall of stuff that, that, that we can do on this. On your phone now, yeah. <laughs> I, I had a guy and I would program hi-hat and, and a bass drum, right? So then I would map the song out, put a guide lead part down, some rhythms, and then a guide bass. And then and then I would get Randy Goodrum to come over and put keyboards on it. And then I would oh, wow. I would then overdub um brushes on a on like an Ampex tape box with a mic on it and to get that Larry London uh, sound. Yep. And um and then uh, I'd overdub any cymbals or hi hats that I needed to do, and then I would I would uh, I'd move on to the next track. So we had all the tracks kind of built that way. And then the the other the other tracks like Walsy Matilda and and things like that, we 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 wanted to play them just live. So we just mm-hmm. sat there and, and did the arrangements, and and then I overdubbed stuff later. You know. I, oh, okay. I put bass on everything and then these brushes and stuff like that. I did all that. So some of that cascading stuff that you were just play, playing where you're ringing out open strings against the fretted notes higher up the neck, that's a real hallmark of, of Chet's thing. And, and it's also a hallmark of what you've sort of evolved from from his old versions of those. Were, were there particular tunes of his that you found super inspirational in that regard? Because that that kind of technique is like really it's really a Chet Atkins thing that that you've taken in new directions but it's like so traceable to him well it's kind of hard to just to remember exactly I think stuff like like this uh, So the, the melodies, and you got. Yeah. You know, so I just worked all those things out, of course. Um, and so now I use that, like, here, here's a classic example. Here's, here's one, one of my finger-picking tunes um, where I'm, I'm, I'm in A, and I'm in A7th. Way up here. So. So I'm I'm using high things here, but I've got yeah. And then you get... those kind of shapes that big people don't like. <laughs> those are crazy. They're, they're... <laughs> yeah. That makes my hand cramp you know? just looking at it. Yeah, if you want to do it, you just got to yeah. practice it until your hand does it. My hand just naturally goes to it because I made right. it do that. You know, this is 
there's no there's uh, there's no uh, secret way. It's just you know I I want to make that sound and my damn my learn. hand's gonna do it whether yeah. it wants. Yeah, and so I, my hand just goes straight through straight to it. You know, with your right so, hand, I've always been curious about this. With you is it's amazing to me how you can seemingly pretty much play whatever you want with both a flat pick and and or a thumb pick. For me, I've been a thumb picker for a long time. I sort of lost my love for a flat pick and I stopped using one a long time ago, but you seem to have this like ability. So I guess my question is twofold. Uh, what makes you pick up a, a flat pick to do something instead of a thumb pick? And also when you do a solo show, do you use a, a flat pick ever? Yeah. Uh, the thing is, I started out finger picking as a flat pick uh, yeah. with a straight pick. And I got I got a thumb pick, and I was like, "Ah, oh, this is yeah. so much better," you know. So then that developed. But then I I I I was working a lot with my brother, so he would he would throw to me for a solo. So it, 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 I would have to play single line stuff with the, with the thumb pick. So I had to develop that. I had to fumble my way through it for the first ten years of that until it started to really kick in. Now I'll just give you an example. When I uh, these days when I when I do my little little medley of Doc, doc and uh, Merle tunes uh, uh, that I recorded uh, with uh, Billy Strings. Oh, yeah. I, I, uh, I go into a, a flat picking tune. Like, like, so here's, here's Doc's guitar, you know, uh, like this. Like... So I, I I go into Black Mountain Rag as a flat picker. insanely you know? cool what did you have to teach yourself to do like is there an is there an angle thing involved or like was it just like a yeah i think i just kept that but i eventually found uh, this is one of my signature thumb picks oh yeah but uh, i'm especially made for that for, for that just to so i could just grab it and do that uh-huh. you know so yeah so It's got all the power down there. So when you have all that facility with a with a thumb pick, what makes you pick up a flat pick? Okay, so here's here's a good example. So certain songs feel the best when you play it with a straight pick, right? Mm-hmm. So. Here's a good example. Yeah. Mm. 
could probably play that with a. Well, that's what I'm. That's what I'm wondering. Couldn't you play that with a? Yeah, it feels better to me when I play it. Okay. You know, um, so so what about a tune like that's like really ingrained in your mind as a thumb picking tune, like like your version of Lady Madonna or something? Could you pull that off with a flat pick? Of course you can. I probably could. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I just. I just like the fact that, like, when I do that Beatles stuff, sometimes I break into a, my love don't bring me presents, right? Yeah. And I wanted to have that, I wanted to have that real powerful thing, you know, and then, then I then I do that. Uh, uh. And it feels good to play it with a thumb pick, you know. Right. So it's just a feel thing. You could obviously do either one on either one. Yeah, I could. But it's all about – all I care about is the music feeling as good as I can get it, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, what do you do for a sound these days as far as amplification? I know that's a big part of what, of your show is like you feel like you're inside the guitar when you're in the audience. What, okay. Well, first of all, this is my main beast. Uh, uh, it, it's a that's a Maiden, right? Yeah, it's a Maiden. Uh, it's called a, a TE Personal, uh-huh. and uh, it's got a mic and a and the the p- pickup system in it. Okay. And I have four guitars on the road this tour. One is is uh, my Maiden, uh, which I've made into a baritone, oh, and cool. then I have. I have one which is a cutaway, and that one I use for the G6 tuning stuff like the Tall Fiddler and stuff like the Mystery and songs like that. And then the other one is a jumbo-sized guitar with big, big strings, uh, 13 to 56, and it's tuned down a whole step. Oh. And then it's, then it's in drop D, so it's down to C. Oh, cool. Okay. I use that for some beautiful ballads and stuff like that, okay. you know. And so you yeah. you have some sort of mix of a microphone, an, an internal microphone, and a pickup. Yeah, it's flat out. the 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 mic is on ten. The pickup is on ten. That's how you get the sound. And do you have you know? do you have uh, like is your stage volume loud? Oh, it's like ACDC. <laughs> oh, shit. so how come the mic doesn't feed back? Because I I cover the hole, and that just does it. It's upset completely. Wow. Yeah. But I mean. Um, so my, my the when you're sitting in the crowd listening to me and you think your head's inside my guitar, <laughs> uh, what you're hearing is a direct feed from a, an AER preamp, right? So you're hearing from the, from a preamp, and then you're hearing from my amp, which is a de, a decapo uh, Udo Rosner amp, German amp. Okay, and that's going straight in the PA. So you're getting two big fat juicy signals and then this is this is on 10 it's you know uh, it's uh, the ferrari of uh, 
and and you've got that amp. So you're hearing the amp on stage as well as monitors. Like it's coming, oh, yeah. at, it's coming at you from all yeah. sides. But the amp is not pointing at the audience. The amp's pointing behind me yeah. and filling up the space right behind me. So when when I go, it goes boom, boom, boom like that. Right. You know? Yeah. I have um, side fill yeah. here. That 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 has my guitar right, really sounding beautiful and big and round and got some nice bass and all that. And then I have a little bit in the monitors right in front of me, but it's mostly voice when, when I use the mic and all that here. Okay. So it's like the guitar is all around me. Wow. So it's as, it's, it's as full tilt for you as it is for the audience. Oh, my God. I want it to be just like powerful. Did that know? take a lot of like figuring out how to pull that off? I had to find the right sound, man. Yeah. And have you used the same guy for a long time? Oh. Yeah. He gets the sound. We set everything flat. There's no like processing and extra EQ and all that. everything is set flat. Mm -hmm. And that's how you get the sound. You get all the frequencies. And uh, I plug in and set everything like on five on my amp, you know, treble in the middle, bass in the middle, middle in the middle, like that. And then the, the, uh, the the masters here it's on about three and the channels about three and four around like that so it's like that so the amps just beginning to drive you know? okay it's a beautiful sound it's, uh, wow you can control how much volume i want i can either turn the monitor signal up or i can turn the front of house signal up i can do on either. your on or, your on your bo on your preamp box preamp on stage yeah okay and you have that like right in front of you somewhere so you can tweak it or is it everything's right at the side here okay i don't want things in front of me you know yeah. i put my mic over here so i want the crowd in front of me yeah i'm playing to the audience you know mm -hmm. completely yeah yeah it's all about giving the people the best the best i i possibly can you know and i'll do whatever i can you know why do you think i i do all this stuff you know because <laughs> you know uh those guitars those maiden guitars is that an australian company yes yeah and he's been building those for you for years i guess oh a little kangaroo yeah. on the headstock that's right well that that came about um because back in about 2003, I was doing a show in Australia and I met I, I met a whole bunch of people. I came to the edge of the stage after the show because people weren't going. They wanted an autograph and they wanted to say hello. So they just stood there and, and uh, my manager said, you better come back out. So I, I, I came back out and I'm talking away. And a dear, very dear old man uh, came up to me and he said, I want you to have this. And he gave me. A, a pin and it was a gold kangaroo with a with a pin on it mm -hmm. to put in my my jacket and i cut the pin off and super glued it here <laughs> and then people people watching my videos on youtube and all that were then writing to maiden insisting that they have a have a kangaroo on the end of their guitar <laughs> so now they just do it in pearl and make make the guitars with the kangaroo it's much easier than gluing on a a pin. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, uh, so lately you've been making some records. You you made this uh, um, amazing Accomplice Two record uh, very recently, and then that's the follow up to Accomplice One. And it just seems like you're really thriving off playing with other people these days and and feature, well, featuring yeah. youngsters and all that. In in between 
accomplice one and accomplice two was uh, uh, just after COVID, or no, just before COVID, was uh, my album Tommy Songs, mm -hmm. which was 24 original songs, yep. uh, just solo. And um, so I've got another one of those to do soon, okay. too. Okay. But, uh, you also made that great record with John Knowles. I love that record. Oh, thanks. Yeah. The Beautiful. Yeah. I see. I love doing stuff. I like just playing. I like being the lead singer and having the band behind me. That's how I see it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. playing that stuff you know yeah th th that was a labor of love that album I just really loved coming up with those arrangements and mm -hmm. choosing the songs all that stuff we wanted everyone to be a little bit different you know yeah yeah so when you do the 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 record like the new one you're collaborating with people is that are those people that you've always done like have you played with all of them before or do you bring them in specifically for that record well, yeah, there's like Molly I, Tuttle and Billy Strings and Jerry Douglas and all that. I, I met Billy. I met Billy years ago at Merle Fest, and we played together. And he got up and jammed with me several times at different other festivals. And and uh, and I met Molly on uh, Kayamo Cruise. Okay, and, and she she invited me to play w w uh, a couple of songs with her in her set. And I met Sierra Hull on that cruise, and. Um, Let's see. I got to know the Nitty Gritty Boys and and uh, Little Feet and all. I got I got to know them on different festivals, and it just all came together, you know. And 
And then uh, did you make that record in one sitting, pretty much, or did was it like done no, here and there? As a lot of serendipity went on, right. on you know, like yeah. everybody was busy straight away after COVID. Yeah. All of a sudden, we're all let out of the gate. So <laughs> I, I really had to grab people when they were available, and it was it was was great. Billy came over one uh, one morning. We worked out the arrangement, and then we just recorded it. And uh, he was gone, yeah, but that took about an hour. Yep. And then Molly came in and she was there less than an hour, had it done, you know. And then in the afternoon, Little Feet came and set up with their crew and everything. And we cut the track in no time, shot the video and everything. That was all done. That was just one day's work. Amazing. Uh, it, what studio were you in? That was in Nashville somewhere, I guess? Ocean Way. Ocean Way, yeah. Nice. Uh, for the bigger stuff. And then Omni. Yeah, oh, cool. Which is, yeah, yeah. For, for for some of the duets, the duet with Molly was in Omni, and the duet with Raul Mallow oh, yeah. was uh, was in Omni. And I did my whole uh, Tommy Songs album in in Omni. You like that place? You know, I like the engineer, yeah. the microphones, and and the desk. I like all. It all has to sound as good as you can get it. When you're recording your acoustic guitar, you don't plug in at all. You just use mics. No plug in. Yeah. Just, just just play this guitar acoustically with a mic on it. It sounds great. Yeah, yeah. So this tour you're on right now is uh, Larry Campbell and Teresa Williams. That's and they're they're on the record too. Oh yeah, um, yeah. And and so what does that look like? They they open the show and then do you guys collaborate yeah. as well? Yeah, towards the end of the night, awesome. we, we, Larry and I do a couple of pieces and then we get Teresa up and then they sing a couple of songs together and then Larry and I play uh, a couple of guitar and fiddle tunes. Oh, cool. Because he, he can fiddle. Yeah, he's, he's clever. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's got it going on. And you guys are playing the Ryman in a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, awesome. Saturday week. All right. Yeah. I hope to be we're, there. We're in New Brunswick, New Jersey mm -hmm. tonight. Okay. This is where we are. You know, I'm just in the performing arts center. All right. Well, um, I know you've you've probably got to go and get that massive guitar sound going. So, uh, thank you so much <laughs> I for and have a shave and change my strings and do all that. So. Thank you for um, for hanging out with me today and and getting through all the technical weird stuff. But I think we I think we nailed it. I hope so. And and maybe we can do part two another time. All right. All right. Wicked. <laughs> Thanks so much, Tommy. Thank Have a great uh, rest of your tour and hope to see you in Nashville. Thank you. I appreciate your kindness. See you, brother. Okay. See you, man. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening, everybody. Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast is produced at the Hen House Studio in East Nashville, Tennessee. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist for Spotify and Apple Music at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thank you again to our sponsors this season, Union Tube and Transistor, Spectra 1964, The Deering Banjo Company, Mule Resonator Guitars, and The Hen House Hang. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Over and out.